0: Welcome to the JMD podcast with me, James Nurse, a UK-based paediatrician and the social media editor at the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease. If you want to hear more from the journal, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and LinkedIn. And you can also add the Wiley Online Library app to your phone or tablet. But for now, settle in for a diagnostic conundrum. Shh, no spoilers. Hello there. Now, we've covered all sorts of topics on the podcast, and normally I'd be telling you right now what the podcast is about, but where's the fun in that? Some of the most popular podcasts are ones where the listeners are invited to follow the hosts as they unravel a mystery. And whilst I can't promise that this episode will be turned into a TV series on Netflix, I'm delighted to welcome two wonderful guests to take me through their conundrum. Today's sleuths are Dr. Anne Dangdo from the Office of the Clinical Director at the NICHD, and Dr. Irene Chang of the Division of Genetic Medicine at the University of Washington and Seattle Children's Hospital. Irene and Anne, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank
2: you so much for having us. Uh,
0: now, there are two parts to your paper, An Unusual Case and the research it spawned. Can you take me through your perplexing presentation?
2: Sure. So as we all know, we encounter challenging cases in clinical medicine, and this was no exception. This was a four-month-old male with unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia, patospinal megalite. And he was admitted for a liver biopsy for expedited workup of potential liver failure. The biopsy showed lipid-laden foamy macrophages with fibrosis. And that's when Biochemical Genetics Service was consulted on this patient for concern of an underlying metabolic liver disease. So I was actually still in training at the time. So this would end up being one of the most memorable cases of my fellowship. This child was born at term via scheduled repeat C-section after an uncomplicated pregnancy and delivery. He presented in the first few weeks of life with jaundice due to unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia. This was initially chalked up to be neonatal jaundice, but then was minimally responsive to phenobarbital and ursodiol. The patient then developed ascites, coagulopathy, hemolytic anemia, and that's when he was admitted for further workup. The family history was unremarkable. So when we went to see the patient, I think the most striking thing was walking into the room and realized that he was... Post-it yellow from head to toe he was very adorable developmentally normal non-dysmorphic features but in hindsight he did have some unusual findings he did seem a little bit more wrinkly than usual in his skin giving him an almost progeroid appearance we had chalked it up at the time to possibly him being a skinny child but in hindsight no the progeroid appearance was interesting so You know, I think at the time, given the buzzwords and the clinical information that we had, the foamy macrophages, the splenomegaly, our working differential was Neiman-Pick diseases type D, A, B, or acid sphingomyelinase deficiency, lysosomal storage disorders such as Gaucher, siolidosis, galactosialidosis, Wolman disease, oligosaccharidosis. So workup of all of these differentials with enzymatic or other biochemical testing was either negative or non-diagnostic except for the oxysterol profile, which was suggestive of a biochemical diagnosis of Neiman Pick type C. So with these two pieces of information um, and his consistent clinical findings, we established what we thought was our diagnosis at the time. So a cholestasis gene panel was already sent at that time, encompassing both MPC1 and MPC2. So we didn't send further genetic testing and we were just waiting on results. But based on our working diagnosis of MPC, based on two levels of evidence, we went ahead and assumed that that was our diagnosis. The patient was actually going to be transferred to an outside hospital that had an ongoing clinical trial for cyclodextrin. However, unfortunately, his clinical status acutely worsened. So he developed liver failure, hepatic encephalopathy, hyperaminemia, and bacteremia. So once he became too unstable to transport, we were sort of cornered into a conundrum of what to do and whether or not we would be able to get him to study medication locally since we had already brought it up to the family. So we were somehow sort of cornered into doing an EIND as a last-ditch effort to make any difference to this child. And we were able to give him two doses of the drug after one or two sleepless nights with a lot of last-minute uh, paperwork. But unfortunately, despite really aggressive neuroprotective measures, the child had progressive cerebral edema and developed brainstem herniation, which progressed brain death. So the cholestasis gene panel came back negative for any any variants at all in MPC1 and 2. We actually sent CNV testing on MPC1 and 2 to make sure we didn't miss any deletions. That was also negative. And at the same time, other multidisciplinary teams were sending off their respective genetic testings just kind of piecemeal. So the kiddo had alpha-1 antitrypsin phenotyping, an HUS gene panel. At the time, DNA was banked and postmortem trio exome gave us a, a diagnosis and corrected our working diagnosis. And the molecular findings showed that he had, in fact, not Pick type C, but a congenital disorder of glycosylation, which at the time was quite novel called ATP6AP1CDG.
1: Um, So I remember Irene's email reaching out to my mentor and supervisor, Dr. Forbes or Danny Porter at the time, describing the case to us. And because Dr. Porter has been working on Neiman-Pick disease type C, there was conversation about would there be any other condition on the differential that should be considered? And at this point, would it be Helpful to proceed with exome sequencing to identify a diagnosis. With many things, it did take a little bit of time. And I think we see the result on a Friday afternoon that we share with the team. And I remember some of the communication we had about ending the week, being able to help the family with having a diagnosis. I might sound a little bit emotional because I still remember reaching out and having conversation with the parents and how devastated they were with the process. So hearing Irene's recount of the whole course of the event is really interesting and remind me again of why we are all in medicine and research.
2: Yes, thank you for mentioning that, Anne. I mean, I think this family is very vividly remembered in my mind as well. After the diagnosis, the family actually sent our our team an email and thanked us for our work. But I still remember the email saying, as of last week, we didn't know what a biochemical geneticist was. And now we are forever grateful to one. So, you know, we we don't do what we do for the recognition or fame or or external gratification. But I think this experience also just highlights the meaningfulness of our work and why we do what we do.
0: I mean, you mentioned this CDG was relatively novel, uh, certainly at the time. I mean, in the UK, when we suddenly have an unexpected number of something, we tend to compare them to buses. And I'm saying that because it it seems that podcasts on ATP6AP1 CDG are like buses because you wait ages for one and then two come along at once. We've just discussed the diagnosis in our last podcast as well. For those who might have missed that, what is ATP6AP1 CDG in a nutshell?
2: So... ATP6-AP1 is an X-linked congenital disorder of glycosylation that's characterized clinically by hepatopathy, immunodeficiency, various neurocognitive symptoms, dysmorphic features, and hematologic abnormalities. I think the predominant phenotype in the neonatal period is actually liver disease. And what's interesting about the hepatopathy in ATP6 AP1 CDG is the copper accumulation in liver and low plasma copper and ceruloplasma. They may mimic Wilson disease like phenotype.
0: Like so many CDG, there's so much we don't know about it, obviously. We, we've heard how it can present in childhood, but may also be diagnosed in you know what would be a, a, a retiree. It's strange that it can be so different between people.
2: Yes, yes, I totally agree. I mean, the market intrafamilial genotypic heterogeneity is very striking in this disorder. You know, there are neonates with acute liver failure that have required liver transplant. and then once we do targeted testing of the familial variant, find an asymptomatic grandfather, as you've alluded to, um, harboring the same familial variant. There's a lot that we still don't understand about this disorder. For instance, the degree of glycosylation seems to also be an imperfect explanation for these phenotypic findings because similar glycosylation patterns in siblings may still confer a different clinical severity of manifestations. So therefore, there are potentially environmental or epigenetic modifiers that may play a role in the difference of of severity that we see.
0: And this diagnosis obviously led you to consider when these NPC biomarkers might be relevant in congenital disorders of glycosylation. What did you do next?
1: As I mentioned, Dr. Porter has been working on Neiman-Pick type C along with several collaborators who are co-authors on this manuscript to identify biomarkers for diagnosis and therapeutic monitoring. And Zuntian Zhang and Dan Ori's group have identified these compounds, the bioacids, and also a new class of lipids that has a long name that I'll just use the acronym for the PPCS, that seem to be very sensitive and potentially specific for the diagnosis of Neumann-Pick-Type-C as Irene mentioned, some of these, not these two particular ones, but related oxysterol compound was found to be elevated in this patient. And that's how Irene approached our group. So once we identify the genetic underlying cause of this patient, we wanted to understand whether other CDG conditions also have these abnormal findings in these oxysterols, Bioacid or PPCS compounds, and at the NIH, there's a long-standing and very hard-working group led by Lynn Wolf, who have been studying other conditions that fall under this group of CDGs. And Lynn put us in contact with other groups and labs who have collected samples and have been studying CDGs as well, so that we can look at these bioacid and PPCS compounds and see what the frequency of bioacid or PPCS being abnormal in um, other types of CDGs.
0: And once you went looking, what did you find?
1: Um, So we found that the bioacid, which is one that's been used more commonly and perhaps a little bit longer in diagnosing NPC. Actually, is below the cutoff level for diagnosing NPC in all of the CDG samples, whereas the PPCS compound, which is a little bit of a newer finding at that time for NPC, was elevated in several of the types of CDGs, which suggested to us that whenever we do use these biochemical assays to identify these cases that present in the infantile stage with these clinical syndrome combination, if there's a positive finding in bioacid or PPCS, we should consider a broad differential diagnosis. And I think what Irene has alluded to before is to kind of broaden our thinking about what are the conditions we should be considering?
0: And within your paper, you acknowledge that Niemann-Pick-C and some of the CDG have overlapping clinical features, including cholestatic liver disease. Is it the liver disease that contributes to these abnormal biomarkers, the n palm etoyolo, o phosphocholine serine or I can see why you're calling it PPCS, <laughs> or is it more complicated than that?
1: And that's one of the questions that we try to answer to try to correlate or look at the pattern of the elevation in PPCS and the liver enzymes that were collected and measured at the same time. And we did not find any correlation between those samples that have elevated PPCS and any one of the liver enzyme or combination of them. So, for example, if an individual had more than one, two or three liver enzymes elevated? Did that seem to correlate with an elevation in PPCS as well? I should put a caveat to this that with any of the rare condition that we do, we tend to work with small number of samples. So these were the findings based on a small number of samples and it would bear repeating and being looked at with a larger number of samples.
0: Is that a call for sample? Should we be sending you all our spare blood?
1: (laughs) Well, we'd be happy to talk with you if anyone would be interested in. And even though I laugh, I think that's one of the things that is really important in rare disease research community is. And it's been demonstrated so well in this collaboration that we undertook, starting with Irene reaching out to us and with Lynn putting us in connection with all the other labs because any one group wouldn't be able to have the number of CDG samples that we were able to use to look at this and then having the expertise to do the test. So it's really important to have that collaborative work and support.
0: There is a wonderful community of of clinicians and scientists working in in rare disease. It's always heartening to hear about it. I mean, and I, I think what's really impressive about this case is it's an example of clinicians who got stuck trying to figure out a case and reached out for help. And then after they got their diagnosis, they went away and did some research to help those who might come after both clinicians and patients. What would you say was the big takeaway message from this case?
2: Yeah, I think for me, if it's okay, and for me to go first, I think we became curious about diagnostic biomarkers for MPC related diagnostic purposes and individuals of various types of CDGs to see if they would be elevated because that was the lab test that led us astray, so to speak, right? I think in our practice in rare diseases, we're always seeking to do better and improve our diagnostics and clinical utility. We wanted to learn from this case and contribute a generalizable knowledge so that clinicians in the future will include CDGs in their differential when they see a child with acute liver failure or cholestatic liver disease. Other patients in literature that have been described have successfully undergone liver transplant with good outcomes. So I think although the other multisystemic manifestation risks remain, it still kind of weighs heavily on me as a clinician whether his course would have been different with earlier diagnosis and perhaps a different course of management. So I I wish I could convey something a little bit more profound, but I think in line with the current trends in our field, my biggest takeaway from this case would be to consider a broad molecular testing as Anne mentioned earlier, early in the diagnostic course, if there's a high clinical suspicion of genetic etiology, but a broad differential, and then maybe to consider more than two levels of evidence to support your working diagnosis with the caveat that one of them should be molecular.
1: I understand where Irene's coming from. We often go back and question, could we have done something else? Speaking as one colleague to another, Irene, I couldn't imagine you doing anything differently. And I think you actually did what other investigators and care providers in our profession would do is to work with the level of evidence you had at the time and then continue to persevere and pursue it. And you did exactly the right path that many would have done. And I agree with what you mentioned about keeping in mind the broad differential diagnosis and use as many resources as we can to confirm the diagnosis, because as much as we've expanded our knowledge about genetic conditions over the past several decades, we all know that there are much more to learn. And I guess more specifically to this case, I think we added to the evidence and understanding that for niemann pick type C, it would seem the bioacid biomarker continue to be good and specific marker for niemann pick type C disease, whereas other markers such as PPCS, while it may support that diagnosis, we need to keep in mind of other potential conditions that can have abnormal presentation of that as well.
0: We try so hard, we strive to to practice good and clever medicine. It seems a shame when the takeaway is we just need to cast our net really wide. Um, But as you say, the most important thing is that we keep an open mind and it might be the best way to make, make the diagnosis quicker sometimes.
1: and Just to go back to something you mentioned earlier, James. It doesn't really work like how it does in-house or those TV shows.
0: <laughs> no, I don't think it, it really works like it does in-house. I mean, I, I barely ever see lupus. Mm-hmm. Um, well, thank you. I mean, I think we could say that's case closed, but there's just one more thing. If you'd like to read this paper, please click the link in the podcast description or go to the journal webpages and search for elevated oxysterol in congenital disorders of glycosylation. Irene and Anne, it's been great to hear how you solved this case.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: And thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.